on today's episode of May the Record Reflect. Right? When you are standing in front of a jury, never looking up, I'm not saying don't use notes, but if you're never giving them eye contact, they're going to be less persuaded. They're going to think you're less genuine. They're going to pay less attention. And so that's an area where students who have mock trial experience and who are more likely to give eye contact, more likely to use notes sparingly and only when they need them, have an advantage over real lawyers. Oh, that, that was really, really dramatic. I don't think that's how most real lawyers do it. Sure, and most real lawyers are bad in court, right? We have to engage the jury. If they don't listen to what you're saying, they can't be persuaded by what you're saying. And so in addition to the idea that people are dismissive of the value of mock trial, I think they're too dismissive of some of the techniques that have been honed because they're successful. Not because they're successful in mock trial, but because they're successful in persuading real people. But it's sort of an interesting double-sided coin, right? Because I always get this feeling when I'm coaching a team, and it's probably like any old team you've been on, but I feel like we are building something together and we are taking flight and there's something, the whole sum of the parts is greater than the individuals. And you just feel like you have this, you're on this journey. And that in itself is an amazing feeling to have that connection with the people you're working on. You all are, it's such a common cause and you are all working for the exact same goal. So that is a wonderful feeling. And of course... (laughs) The flip side of that coin, though, is that when you lose, it can it's so crushing. It is so crushing. And it's a good reminder about life that the most successful folks are people who fail a lot. And you got to be able to accept it and move on. That was Justin Bernstein and Spencer Palkey. And this is May the Record Reflect. Hello, this is Ronnie Lott Choi, and I'm the National Institute for Trial Advocacy's Education Director. I had the pleasure and terror of stepping into host Marcy Mangan's shoes for this episode. While Marcy was on a much deserved vacation, I had the chance to speak with Justin Spencer, host of the Unscripted Direct podcast. Justin is the director of the A. Barry Capello Program in Trial Advocacy and a lecturer in law at UCLA. Justin teaches courses related to trial advocacy and evidence and coaches the law school's trial team. In 2022, he received UCLA's Distinguished Teaching Award, the university's highest teaching honor. His college and law school teams at UC Irvine, NYU, and UCLA School of Law have six times finished their seasons as the number one ranked teams in the United States. His co-host, Spencer, is a shareholder at Walkup, Melodia, Kelly, and Schoenberger. Spencer's practice focuses on catastrophic personal injury and wrongful death cases involving defective medical devices, vehicular collisions, dangerous conditions of public and private property, and medical malpractice. In addition to lecturing and trial advocacy at Berkeley Law, he directs Berkeley Law's external trial competition program and coaches multiple trial advocacy teams. Under Spencer's guidance, the program has risen to national prominence, having won many national honors and distinctions, including several national championships. In this episode, Justin, Spencer, and I had the chance to talk about their podcast and the many lessons from mock trial that litigators can apply in the courtroom. Here's our interview. Well, today we are lucky enough to have as our guest the host of another of our favorite podcasts here at NIDA. 
I actually went through the cast guest list for this podcast and counted up all the Nita folks I could recognize. And there are a lot. I'm afraid if I list them by name that I will forget someone and I don't want to do that. But in my short, brief list, I think I found 14 uh, Nita affiliated folks who've been a guest on your podcast, which is Unscripted Direct. And so I have with me today Justin Bernstein and Spencer Palkey. So thank you both for being here. And I want to give you a chance first. Tell us a little bit about what Unscripted Direct is. What Unscripted Direct is? Well, it is our podcast. It is where we, Justin and I, uh, interview members of our community and members uh, of communities adjacent to ours, our law school trial advocacy community, and learn their stories, share their stories, tell their stories, and we make up some of our own along the way, I would say. What do you think, Justin? I agree. (laughs) (laughs) What was the inspiration behind the podcast? What made you decide, hey, you know what? Let's do a podcast. Spencer gets all the credit here. It was his idea. So I'll I'll let him explain uh, where the idea sprung from. So uh, for years, I've been going to law school trial advocacy competitions and having great conversations with the wonderful coaches, directors that are members of our community. And I would sit there and enjoy the conversation and think, man, it's, it's sad that like it's just me and this other person talking. I think that'd be great to share this with others. And Eventually, maybe as the pandemic, I don't know what, but I thought, why don't we just do a podcast? And so Justin and I have been working on other projects and I, I said, let's do this. And he said, what would you say, Justin? I said, I'll get back to you. <laughs> exactly. He said, uh, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, um, I'm glad, I'm glad he said yes, eventually. So you mentioned the law school trial ag community or you called it our community. So what are your roles in that community? And I'll, I'll ask Justin first. Sure. So the trial advocacy community is pretty enormous because almost every law school has a trial advocacy program, whether it's a formal established program with a name and a full-time director, or it's an informal program where some alumni are working with current students uh, to either teach a, a class on practical skills or to coach them for a competition. And that community numbers in the hundreds uh, across the country. And if you include people who are doing it part-time as alums, it probably uh, gets to four figures. Uh, I'm the director of trial advocacy at UCLA School of Law, and Spencer runs the program at Berkeley's Law School. And how did you come to law school trial advocacy? Did you compete as an advocate in undergrad or law school? So I, I started, my first mock trial was uh, in fourth grade. Uh, I defended uh, B.B. Wolf. Um, some call him the Big Bad Wolf. We won the motion eliminated, call him B.B. Wolf uh, with my dad as co-counsel back in Nebraska. <laughs> but I did high school. I did some college and then did it in law school myself. Um, and I'll put in a plug for an episode of Unscripted Direct um, with a NIDA faculty member, Adam Shallot, where you get to learn the origin of Spencer's name back in Nebraska. So I think that's episode five. So I'll I'll put in that plug. If you want to learn more about young Spencer in Nebraska, which could be its own spinoff. What about you, Justin? So I did college mock trial at Berkeley, go Bears. And uh, I just absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, When I went to law school at NYU, I worked with the undergraduate team. And when I moved to California to start practice, uh, I worked with the UC Irvine undergraduate team. So when those programs had some success and UC Irvine's law school uh, opened its doors, uh, then Dean Erwin Chemerinsky uh, was kind enough to let me run the inaugural program there. Uh, and 
that led to a year at Drexel. And when UCLA created the position uh, at their law school, I got really my dream job. I mean, I get to live and work in the place that I love, Southern California, where my family is, and you know, one of the best schools in the world, and I get to work with incredible students. So that's sort of how I got to where I am now. So you, you meet other coaches at tournaments, and I've definitely had that experience as well. You want to continue the conversation, and you start the podcast. So what were your goals for the podcast, really, when you started out? And has that evolved over time? Our goal was to get the community to know each other better. As you mentioned, Ronnie, when, when you're at a competition, you're at the competition. And so you're focused on your students. You're focused on, on helping them get the best result they can. And often when you see colleagues, they're coaching the opponent. And so the relations are still social, but you're focused on the event as a competition. And the discussions about education and approach to this and the commonalities are off on the periphery. We wanted something that brought it to the forefront because I think this is true of every vocation, even those that are competitive, we have more in common than, than we don't. And so we wanted to get to know people in the community better. And we figured if we wanted to get to know people in our community better, other professors, other coaches, other trial lawyers, then the rest of them would want to get to know each other better too. And so our podcasts are really interview-based, getting to know uh, the professors and coaches around the country, how they coach, how they teach how they do things similar and different than us, and also who they are as people and how they got to where they are. I'd say a sub goal was surviving as a podcast. That, that was a sort of foundational goal. And then beyond that to connect the community. So I was going to throw that in there for you. Well, um, so you can, you can check that one off. So, but you said something about creating the community. I want to go back to, because some of your episodes deal with kind of difficult topics. I'm thinking specifically of episodes you've done that deal with, issues of um, unequal treatment, perhaps, for competitors and diversity and judging, which is something that we at NIDA think about a lot, the diversity of our faculty. And I know you've addressed issues of diversity of mock trial benches and coaching and what this community looks like. Because you're having those difficult conversations, do you feel like that has improved your relationships in the community? Or is it ever one of those things where you're like, I'm a little worried about having this conversation? Well, we only know what people are saying to our faces. So <laughs> I would say that, um, yeah, that, that's a good point. But I would say it's deep in the relationships. You know, I mean, it's such a funny thing, right? Doing a podcast because you're Justin and I often make the joke that it's just us talking. But, you know, there are a few people listening and you're having this direct conversation with a friend or, you know, another person you have on the show. And uh, you want to have a genuine conversation and express your real thoughts, but you do feel, I feel, uh, some amount of tension there about, well, some of my true thoughts may not be what everybody wants to hear. So that's, it's definitely tough to cover, but it's, that's a live issue in our space, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion among judges, among fact patterns, students, competitors. And, you know, I don't think it would be a very honest podcast if we didn't talk about those topics. So, you know, it comes with some risks, but also not talking about them comes with serious risks, I think. Yeah. And we try really hard not to talk about people or about things. We try to let them talk. For example, one of the challenges in the law school trial advocacy community is what topics are going to be selected for the case that people use. And in particular, there's often a debate about whether schools, when they host these events, should use socially sensitive cases, cases involving things like either domestic violence or discrimination on protected grounds or something related to an election at a time that elections are really divisive. 
And there's two really genuine, thoughtful, fair schools of thought that come into conflict. One is the real world is hard. And the cases these students are, are going to try as lawyers are going to be hard. And they won't always get to choose their cases. And we should challenge them with difficult cases, not just complex legally, but complex emotionally, politically, culturally. The other school of thought is, yeah, but they're students and they don't always get to choose their cases in law school. And students shouldn't have to try cases that they're uncomfortable with uh, that might be triggering based on trauma they've experienced in the past. Um, and that, you know, a case that's okay for one student might be really, really problematic for another. And I think those are both really thoughtful approaches. And so when, we, when our show, if we're talking about whether or not one approach should be used, we're generally talking about both sides of the issue and having guests on from both sides of the issue. And that's also true when we talk about the importance of diversity uh, in our judging panels, uh, in our students, access, equality, things like that. And you said you're talking about both sides of the issue. I, I have seen and appreciate. Who do you think your audience is? Is it mostly other coaches? Do you think, are you trying to get listeners from the student ranks as well and legal practitioners? Who is the audience you hope to attract? Beyond Justin's mom or? Yeah. I mean, she, she accounts for a third of our downloads. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, um, in addition to Justin's mom. Yes. She's, she is an amazing person and listener. She might listen to this. Um, well, you have to tell us her name. You have to give her a shout out by name, though. Uh, my, my, my mom is Anita Charney, and I am sure you're going to get more downloads for this episode because of her. <laughs> Excellent. That's what we like to hear. That's why we invited yeah. you, actually, Justin. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Hey, hey, Ma. <laughs> Who's our target audience? Well, um, certainly it is the uh, coaches uh, and directors who are members of our community. But, you know, um, we certainly have content that would be interesting to others adjacent to that. Students come to mind. And then, of course, just practitioners uh, as well. This last season, we had a new section or segment that we called Suggested Plagiarism, where we brought on great trial lawyers and other folks from our community to share their best methods. And I think that um, sort of broadened our reach. But core is coaches and, and uh, directors of programs. Yeah, I love the episode um, Ben Rabinowitz, who's a NIDA faculty member, did on cross-examination. I thought that was oh. fantastic. He is just a gem. Lots of good ones, but that was so good. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the intersection in your lives of mock trial and practice. What has mock trial taught you about trial practice, either your experiences as a competitor or now as a coach? What lessons have you taken from mock trial to practice? Well, a basic one that I've taken, and it's 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 it seems so basic and obvious, but like to try a real case, you need to know the elements of trial. You got to know how to do an opening, a direct, a cross, and a closing. And from my perspective, it kind of blows my mind when somebody did not do mock trial and then they go into the real world and they try cases. Now, of course, programs like NIDA, organizations like NIDA help to bridge that gap. But just the, the, the basic uh, fundamentals of trying a case, there's just no better place in the world or way in the world to learn it than through mock trial advocacy. And so just being able to come into my practice years and years ago uh, and be like, you know what, I can do this stuff from a mechanical perspective that, of course, you know, there's a lot more to learn. But to mechanically know how to do the things you do in trial, boy, that was a huge difference. And I, I got that from mock trial. Yeah, I, I'd say that the biggest thing that I've learned about mock trial as it compares to real practice is that mock trial 
absolutely simulates real practice in ways that are suggestive of best practices in, in real court and that trains people to be outstanding advocates. Often I'll hear uh, practitioners say, oh, it's just mock trial. Or if I'm doing trial consulting with an attorney, sometimes they say, well, that's, that's mock trial. But when you actually see the same techniques applied in real trials, they are invariably successful. Um, when I have gotten to do focus groups, uh, especially with Spencer, we'll often find that we get the same comments from our mock jurors in our focus groups that we do in these scored competitions. And I guess I'll, I'll highlight three things that I've learned in mock trial that I think practitioners would really benefit from. One is just as important, if not more important than what you say is how you say it. The delivery is so crucial, high energy, dynamic. Uh, I think sometimes people, uh, when they see mock trial say, well, that's, that's really dramatic. Juries love drama. Now, obviously you can't dial it up to 10 at every moment or you'll seem insincere, but people want to be entertained, whether they're lawyers, uh, people watching TV people who are conscripted into jury service. Uh, so you, you got to be energetic and passionate. Two, exactly. storytelling is so crucial. And by storytelling, I mean knowing what details to emphasize, what details to save for later, uh, doing something in present tense sometimes, making people feel like they're there. I mean, this is such an obvious statement, but it's one that we often forget. The biggest challenge the jurors have is they weren't there when these things happened. So helping them feel like they are there, that they are watching things, even if it's just through the narration of a lawyer, is incredibly powerful, and it sort of sears into their their memory. Uh, and so finding ways to deliver the information in ways that feel like a story helps juror retention and persuasion. And the third thing is that organization is crucial. When lawyers just get up and talk, uh, no matter how gifted they are, juries often get confused, whether that's a mock jury or a real jury. But saying, these are our main points, these are the three points, uh, these are the two points, that really helps them. And if that, that stays consistent from opening to closing and everything in between, jurors are able to follow that roadmap. And I intentionally said two or three. I, I was working with a lawyer recently who said, these are my 11 points. And I'm like, okay, you got to stop. You can't, because as soon as you say I got 11 points, the, 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 jurors, the jurors are looking, how do, how do I get out of jury service? <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, I had three. Yeah. Up until that point, they were excited about it. Thankfully, you didn't say you had 11 points. We would have had to take a pause. <laughs> um, what about doing the podcast? Have you learned anything through this experience, this kind of experiment of doing a podcast? It's not an experiment anymore. This successful you know, endeavor of doing a podcast. Anything you've learned that you've taken to your coaching or to your actual practice? That's a great question. That is that was not on the uh, the suggested uh, uh, questions we might get, and I, I think that the answer is yes. I mean, I I love talking to people and hearing what they have to say and hearing their story, and you know that's direct examination. I think that was your last um, your last podcast episode yourself, uh, Ronnie, and I just love hearing people's story. And you could never you could never practice too much at uh, asking people questions that help them tell their story. So I think I think that's something I've taken from it. I've learned new techniques for, for teaching and coaching. Uh, and what's so cool is you might hear somebody speak for an hour and a lot of what they're doing, either you're already doing it, or you're like, that's not how I do it. But often you'll get one nugget and you go, oh, wow, that's really insightful. I'm going to steal that. And so it's definitely made me a better coach and teacher learning from others. I think I've also learned how 
likable almost everybody is when you actually get to know them. Because sometimes when you meet somebody briefly or in the, the heat of competition or after a dispute, you can think one thing, but when you actually get to know them, why they decided to turn their career into one that focuses on education, almost invariably, I come away really liking them and, and, and considering them a friend. And the third thing, if you'll let me be mushy, is that uh, I've gotten to become really good friends with Spencer. Uh, he asked me to do this, and we'd been colleagues, and we consulted on, on a couple of his cases. Uh, but he's just a tremendous guy. I mean, he he's too humble to say this, but he is somebody who's a lawyer for the right reasons. And getting to see him care about his clients and advocate for them um, has been really, really cool. Oh, that is really sweet of Justin. I got to jump in and say he's better on the podcast than I am, especially when he gets to answer after me. And so he really took advantage of that there. Um, but it's definitely a two-way street. And I'm sure that you have a similar experience, Ronnie. I mean, getting to work with your with other hosts is like, it's a, it's a lot of work and you better like each other because <laughs> it won't work if you don't. Yeah. Now, Charlie, uh, who was your, your producer and editor on this, uh, she has a British accent. And I think if Spencer had heard her before he had to select his podcast partner, he might have he might have he might have picked somebody else because it is it is such an unfair advantage. So, so I'm thinking advantage. that one of us is going to learn a British accent for we we just finished season four. So for season five, yes, that's the change. That's the new content. Right, yeah. Spencer will be Australian. I'll be Irish. Wow. Yeah. Okay. This has been a good workshop. Yeah, I mean, I I love it. It'll, it'll be like when Ricky Gervais. Brought the office to America. It'll, it'll yes. be like it'll be like that. that. That'll be, it'll you. be exactly like that. <laughs> it'll be exactly like right. that. Right. <laughs> so, what about kind of mock trial lessons? You talked about three points, not eleven. Thank you very much, Justin. Um, three points practitioners can take from mock trial, kind of skill based. Anything, any life lessons you've taken from mock trial that you've applied not only to practice but also kind of your relationships, how you live your life. Spencer's going to make me go first this time. Uh, and I'm going to give you three. I, 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 I can't help myself. It's a machine. I, I can't help myself. Uh, what you get out is almost always what you put in. Uh, it's one of the things that I think drew me to mock trial in college uh, was that no matter how good somebody was or how new they were, no matter where they were on the spectrum, you were going to get out what you put in. Uh, if you worked hard, if you prepared and that's not just working hard on what you're going to say, but how you're going to say it and getting your teammates ready or your witnesses ready. All of those things end up paying dividends. And that's such a cool life lesson. Um, I love it for students, even my students who aren't going to become trial lawyers. Uh, it's a great lesson for them as they begin their practice that you know the, the investment of preparation is unmatchable. Uh, second, there is no guarantee of success. There's nothing you can do, particularly in a trial that's going to happen once. In our mock trial competitions, you know, you get to try the case a bunch of times, but in real life, you generally get one crack at it. And it doesn't matter how prepared you are. You might increase your chances of victory, but the 12 people in that box, you don't know what they're going to do when they go back to deliberate. And learning to deal with disappointment and the fact that something isn't always up to you is hard. Um, and I think the third is figure out what you want to fight for, right? As, as a lawyer, you, you have an incredible opportunity to use your talents and education uh, for others. And you get to choose who those others are and what the causes are, just like you do, you know, when you're outside the courtroom. So I think those are sort of the, the big life lessons I, I, I walk away with as a 
trial lawyer and trial advocacy instructor. I'll say that that middle one speaks to me about the learning to accept failure. Um, but the, it's sort of an interesting double-sided coin, right? Because I always get this feeling when I'm coaching a team, and it's probably like any old team you've been on, but I feel like we are building something together and we are taking flight and there's something, the whole sum of the parts is greater than the individuals. And you just feel like you have this, you're on this journey and that in itself is an amazing feeling to have that connection with the people you're working on. You all are, it's such a common cause and you are all working for the exact same goal. So that is a wonderful feeling. And of course, <laughs> the flip side of that coin though, is that when you lose, it can, it's so crushing. It is so crushing. And it's a good reminder about life that the most successful folks are people who fail a lot and you got to be able to accept it and move on. And man, each failure hurts, but I, I value them. The other thing I would, would, would add to add to it is it's taught me the importance of relationships. I mean, I have met so many amazing people through mock trial in the last 15, 16 years. I've done this really close friends, friends. I'm going to spend the weekend with this weekend, friends whose weddings I've officiated friends, whose kids I've got to know. I mean, it is about so much even more than the wonderful skills we're sharing, that kind of thing, but just having the vehicle of fighting for the same thing uh, together as a reason to spend time together and become friends is uh it's it's life altering and i I love it wait you said we're we're hanging out this weekend i didn't get that invitation (laughs) that's next weekend Uh uh-huh are you busy next weekend (laughs) we'll talk later (laughs) okay um i'm not but so what (laughs) have you had the experience of because i've had this um have you had folks who you met in their as students. So when you met, they were students, you were a coach who now are part of your kind of legal network of colleagues, maybe even opposing counsel. Um, and what's that experience been like? Uh, definitely. I mean, I've had um, former students who work with me, who work with me now to this day. I haven't had to try a case against a former student, but I've had former students try cases against each other. I mean, I, I've got, you know, I keep track of all of them. They're like, they're, I want to, I don't want to say they're like my, my children, but I feel like this, this connection to all of them. And, and I like to, for Berkeley's trial advocacy community, keep everybody connected through i've got this whole map that i share with the community so they can see where people are and what they're doing and so yes not only my life but i think that they are connected to each other's lives and even in even if they didn't go to school together we get this sort of intergenerational connection by coaching and by hosting events and so a uh, big yes would be my answer absolutely i mean last year alone uh i got to officiate three weddings of former students uh i hired uh, several of my former students to teach part-time at UCLA to be instructors in our trial advocacy course. Uh, I had other former students of mine come teach at UCLA. Some of my former students hired me uh, to help with their trials uh, that they had coming up. Uh, maybe most importantly of all, uh, my brother had his first child and his wife is my former student. Uh, <laughs> no, no accident. Um, I mean, he, he, he's not really a mock trial alum, but I had to make sure we had some mock trial uh, in, 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 the, in the family. So I think trials uh, are hard and they bring people together, whether that's the mock trial training or, of course, the real trials. Um, and it's so cool that, that, you know, the people you work with may, maintain a, a huge part in your life. So I think this is a plug from all of us to if you're a practicing attorney to consider getting involved in potentially coaching, teaching with Nita, that as you can hear, there's a lot you get back from getting into the education side of legal practice as well. So what about from mock trial, Spencer, you you mentioned earlier 
or no, I think it was Justin, sorry, that um, sometimes folks think that mock trials too dramatic and that's not realistic. Was there anything when you both started practicing that you had to unlearn from mock trial? I don't know if it's unlearning anything. In fact, I think I was surprised at how much the skills that are successful in a mock trial are successful in, in real court, which makes sense because it's designed as a simulation and it's often being judged by the same type of people who are going to be evaluating you in court and, and being persuaded in court. But I think the biggest difference is the stakes. Because when you're doing a mock trial, you really, really, really want to win for yourself and for your teammates and your colleagues. But when you are doing a real trial, you desperately want to prevail for your client. And particularly when that client is somebody vulnerable, somebody who is relying so heavily on you, to win feels incredible in a different way and to lose is just devastating beyond anything that can happen in a competition. And I think it is hard to prepare any student for the highs and lows and the stress of representing somebody whose life, finances, liberty depend on you. I would definitely um, second that. I mean, the, I, I, and I don't know if I would, and you know, not to quibble with the question, I don't know if I would say unlearn. I mean, if, if I was to really strictly try to answer the question, I guess I might say, well, perhaps people are taught uh, you know, in mock trial to do things a little bit more formally than in the real world. Um, you know, I remember one time early on, I, I was in trial and I was like the first day or whatever, and jury wasn't in the room or anything, but I kept standing to talk to the judge. Cause I think you should stand when you talk to the judge. It's a measure of respect. And the judge like, it's okay. It's okay. We're a working courtroom here. Don't you know, no need to stand. But I, I was glad I was standing incorrectly instead of sitting incorrectly. Right. I mean, I think that, um, perhaps to the extent there's some more formality, the training boy, I would much rather have that and then realize I don't need to have and don't need to use that then have no idea and be you know uh be a fish out of water in the courtroom so the strictly speaking answer to the question that's as much as I can give I think that it is uh that's one percent and 99 percent I'm so glad I, I learned as mock trial in mock trial to take to the real world no absolutely I agree I mean even in needed teaching you know we're teaching with practicing attorneys and sometimes we may teach something as you said Spencer in a more formal way or perhaps more kind of by the book and participants will sometimes say to me, well, my judge doesn't require this. And I, I always answer the same way you do, which is, that's great. You should know your courtroom. That's a really important skill as well. Know your courtroom, but you know how to do it now, right? Cause you might not always yeah. be in that courtroom. You might be in a different courtroom. You might move from state to federal practice. So I, I, I teach that way in both law school teaching and in NIDA as well. It's once, we, once we learn it by the book, we can modify, but we always know how to do it. And if your listeners want to hear Ronnie teaching uh, even more specifically, she's on episode 51 of our podcast. She, Ooh, she does an amazing explanation of how to teach some of these skills. So highly recommend. It's a great yeah. episode. Great yeah. episode. Um, well, thank you for the plug. I mean, we, that's what we hope. We want listeners from this podcast to go listen to yours and vice versa. So, Right. Because there's just, just a lot of overlap in teaching mock trial, teaching practicing attorneys. Kind of like you said, um, Justin, when I started practicing, I really was surprised at how much I knew how to do. And there was so much I didn't know how to do when I, when I first started practicing law. There was just a lot I didn't know how to do, and it was really comforting that I felt like I did know how to admit a piece of evidence, though. I might not 
know how to write the motion yeah. to suppress. There was just a lot that was still a question mark. And it was really comforting to have a few skills up my sleeve. And I'm sure you've had that experience as well. And I think mock trial and trial advocacy as a course is excellent training, even for people who don't anticipate being trial lawyers or don't go into trial very often. For example, as you take a deposition, if you don't know what's going to be admissible, harder to ask good questions. If you don't know how this is going to be used at trial, even if trial is unlikely, hard to set up really great questions at a deposition. I find that, that students who take trial ad and who do mock trial in particular are so much more comfortable with the rules of evidence, right? Spencer and I have talked about this on the show. Evidence is probably the only subject in law school where you have to have split second knowledge and mastery, right? Nobody walks up to you in the street and says, quick, give me the, the elements to a contract defense, right? That, that doesn't happen. Whereas you do in a courtroom need to know instantly whether something's hearsay and whether there's an exception. And even if you're not going to trial, the ability to know that as you're working with your colleagues and working in litigation really sets people apart as they come out of law school. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the premise of mock trial and, and NIDA is learn by doing that to be able to make split second decisions, you need to have done it before. Any misconceptions about mock trial that you run into? Sadly, yes. I mean, I, I would be, I would be telling you a fib if I said that, um, um, some great trial lawyers uh, have said to me things about mock trial that were dismissive about it. And um, I think it's unfortunate that it's, that it's somehow not real or not valuable. Uh, that, that kind of dumbfounds me a little bit. It's kind of like saying to a pilot um, who's got a thousand hours in the flight simulator, like, well, what's that good for? You know, how's that going to help you when you get up in the airplane? That won't be worth anything. I, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, I think that mock trial is the best you can do to simulate the exercise and it is darn good it is i mean it is an incredible simulation of what it is to try a case going from having difficult witnesses to having very challenging competition to having real judges to getting feedback about what you're doing and how you're doing it so that misconception frustrates me but we, we battle against it and we've got the added benefit of, of being correct on the issue of of whether or not mock trial is valuable so I agree with Spencer. I'll add one other. I think that sometimes when practitioners, particularly those who are supervisors in like a PD's office or DA's office, see differences between how students are performing in a mock trial, particularly really successful students, versus what their what those supervisors' experience is in real court, they immediately assume that what they're used to is better. Mm. And often it's the result of bad habits. Oh, you shouldn't be doing that. Real lawyers read from their papers and, and they stand in front of the jury with a pad and they just read. Sure, but that's bad, right? When you are standing in front of a jury, never looking up, I'm not saying don't use notes, but if you're never giving them eye contact, they're going to be less persuaded. They're going to think you're less genuine. They're going to pay less attention. And so that's an area where students who have mock trial experience and who are more likely to give eye contact, more likely to use notes sparingly and only when they need them, have an advantage over real lawyers. Oh, that, that was really, really dramatic. I don't think that's how most real lawyers do it. Sure. And most real lawyers are bad in court, right? We have to engage the jury. If they don't listen to what you're saying, they can't be persuaded by what you're saying. And so in addition to the idea that people are dismissive of the value of mock trial, I think they're too dismissive of some of the techniques that have been honed because they're successful, not because they're successful in mock trial, 
but because they're successful in persuading real people. And and for folks who didn't get to do mock trial, I, I will put in a plug and saying a, a great way to get that experience of learn by doing is attending one of our NADA programs. If you since you cannot uh, go, but I would not advise you to go back and redo law school. Um, <laughs> Nita Nationals is amazing. I loved it. I did it right out of law school. Even though I had done a bunch of mock trial, I loved it. And it was, oh, it was fabulous time at Ben Rabinowitz as well. But it was amazing. I also did Nita in San Diego, and I thought it was terrific. Excellent. Well, thank you. And, you know, our guest lists overlap quite a bit, which I think shows that the, the folks who are the leading teachers of practicing attorneys are also in the law schools doing a lot of this mock trial coaching and teaching as well. So how do you keep your skills sharp as a coach and then as a practitioner as well? How do you stay on top of things and know that your teaching is evolving and not just kind of staying static? Well, it's I actually am coming off of a coaching hiatus. I hadn't coached for about two years, coinciding with the birth of our second child, uh, Munchkin number one. They insist on a misordering of the numbers. Anyway, I hadn't coached for a couple of years and that gave me an interesting amount of uh, detachment from the coaching. I was just running the program, teaching class and all that stuff. And I don't know, I would say that was, I don't know if I'm uh, advising that as a method for, um, for sharpening your coaching skills, but that's what happened for me was to take a step back and then jump back into it. It sort of rejuvenated me and uh, it, it gave me an opportunity to think about what I was doing in my practice and how I can pull that over to my coaching and teaching. So that's, I guess, I don't know if that's a, a, a lesson or a thing that can be duplicated, but it was, it was nice. Uh, it gave me a, a new perspective. It's harder, I think, for me to sort of stay sharp on those skills in, in some ways because I am full-time at the law school. I'm not practicing. Uh, but in terms of staying sharp in developing successful trial strategies, I think in, in some ways, ironically, mock trial is is probably better at that than real practice because you get so much feedback and so much instant feedback, right? If you're trying a real case, unless you've got the the budget to do a focus group or a mock trial, you don't find out whether your case theory was successful until it's too late. Uh, whereas if you're coaching a competition and, and, you know, for example, last fall, we might have eight teams competing. They each get four rounds. That's a lot of opportunities to see whether the theories you're helping students develop are strong. Uh, but I also try to actually do the, the in-trial performances. I'll do it when I'm modeling with students. I'll sometimes scrimmage our students before competition. Um, the first lecture of the year, I always start with an opening statement. And you know, there are a few things as scary as standing in front of a jury, uh, but standing in front of 50 law students who are judging you is also pretty scary. You want to make sure you're prepared. So those are some things I try to do to stay sharp. I'll just add uh, that... It's going the other direction, uh, sharpening my practice using my coaching. It is really helpful to coach these teams because you have to make, as Justin says, I mean, there's a lot of opportunities, but one thing there's opportunities for is making decisions. You've got to make like strategic decisions uh, as you go along on a shortened time frame uh, as compared to the real world. And there's something that that helps my executive decision-making muscle get strengthened when I'm like, we're doing, this is what we're doing. We've considered it and it's what we're doing. Whereas in the real world, you may have two years to kind of mull it over, but in the mock trial world, you got four weeks. And so this is, you have to think about it and make a decision. So I think that actually helps my, my strategic decision-making in practice. So we're, we're getting to the end of our time together. And I wanted to ask you, do you have any examples of times you've taken a skill you learned or you perfected in mock trial 
into your practice? I've got an example, and it's an example from Spencer's practice. Spencer, is it okay if I share uh, the story of, of your uh, PI case uh, involving um, the paralysis from a year ago? Yeah, absolutely. So Spencer had a really hard case. Uh, it was a med mal case. His client was a young girl who was injured during childbirth. Uh, when she was delivered, her right arm was paralyzed for life. And the the county where this happened was one that was very favorable to doctors um, and not to, to plaintiffs. Uh, the opponent was a very experienced trial lawyer uh, with a large budget and a fancy expert witness and a very likable, um, very likable client. And this young woman and her family had basically one advantage and that was, their lawyer was Spencer. Um, and his opening statement when, when we did mock juries really showed the value of some of the lessons we learned in mock trial because he started his opening with a clear theme of what the case is about and in one sentence told the jury what they need to understand. And he then told the story of the injury, but not from start to finish, not from the moment that you know mom became pregnant to the, the moment that the girl is now four years old and, and injured on a playground and you know she's not like the other kids. It was a simple snapshot of the moments before delivery and where the doctor's hands were and what the doctor was thinking and doing. And by zeroing in on the story, he really helped the jury understand what this case is about. And he later explained all those details and he later organized everything. But he told that story clearly with a theme and a theory right up front. And he delivered with tons of passion. Uh, and when we interviewed the jurors afterward, they got it. They understood why those facts were so salient and they were really engaged. They remembered the details because he'd been so vivid and energetic in his delivery. And those are mock trial skills, but those are trial skills. You know, I'd actually add to that and say that that the, the reference that Justin has there touches on other things we've talked about, which is that's the first case we consulted on. We've consulted on others since then and will many more in the future. But I wanted to work with Justin on that case because he is so good at mock trial and I know that it's the same set of skills. And so, like, I was just thinking to myself, I was like, well, yeah, there's any number of soothsayers and other folks out there. And I don't mean to speak ill of any, um, any folks who are, are jury consultants. Uh, many of them are absolutely fabulous, but I wanted somebody who I know can help me take my game to the next level. And I just think that it speaks to Justin, but also to mock trial that that's, that's where I turned to and lo and behold, you know, it worked. So good story. And thanks for making it possible, Justin. Well, thank you both so much. I have one final question for you. Um, which is one we ask many of our guests. If you could be an attorney in any historical case, I'll let you even throw in fiction if you want to, but any historical case, which one would you choose? And which side would you represent? Um, I'll, I'll point to Justin first. So my first reaction, of course, to this question is, okay, what, what's a really important case? Uh, but if it's a case that, that went... Uh, they, they got the outcome that, that I would have preferred, uh, the party that I want won. I, I don't, as much as I might for ego and excitement want to be involved, I don't think I'd want to disturb the result, right? So uh, I don't want to be part of Brown v. Board. That came out the right way. Uh, I, don't want, I, don't, I don't want to mess that up. Um, <laughs> I totally get that. I don't want to screw yeah, anything up so either. I think that the case I choose is any case where somebody was wrongfully convicted, um, where we now know they were wrongfully convicted and 
either spent too long in prison. Um, let me try that again. Or, and spent time in prison, because I guess any time uh, is too much time, or where they faced capital punishment. Uh, I'm not saying that I could reverse that, but I'd love to try. And so that if I could go back and, and be part of a case, I'd want one where I had a chance to fix an injustice. Uh, this is a great question, and uh, we, uh, you know, not to disclose any secrets, but we were tipped off this question was coming, which we we could of course glean from the podcast itself. Uh, and so I struggled with this one, um, but I came upon the, if you recall, the Triangle Shirtwaist, you know, uh, disaster that happened in New York. I I first became aware of that case because of the defense attorney's cross, probably lots of people have heard the story. I think it's in The Art of Cross-Examination by Francis Wellman, where he's got uh, on the stand uh, one of these poor women who was in this factory, and he just asks her the open-ended question, tell me what happened, tell me what happened again and again and again, and she doesn't tell the story the same way. And that was held up as like some, you know, innovative thing. Perhaps it's Francis Wellman, and it was innovative, you know, back in the 30s or 20s when he wrote that, I guess. But that just is I think deplorable, honestly. And I would love to be the prosecutor on the other side of that case um, because this, this I, I, I just don't think the historical memory from that case should be, at least from the trial advocacy perspective, that it was this risky cross move that was so great. I mean, 146 people died. <laughs> so um, I don't know. I'd like to be the prosecutor there and lean into the cute move that was made by this this defense attorney on cross-examination. And I would use that in the closing argument. Again, just as Justin says, who knows if I make a difference, but boy, I think that should have a different memory associated with it. Or at least object asked and answered. <laughs> no, God. Um, well, thank you both so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. How can people find Unscripted Direct? On any platform you listen to podcasts, just search for Unscripted Direct and you will find yourselves there. We also got, we got a website, unscripteddirect.com. We're on the social media channels, whatever those are, um, mostly as Unscripted Direct. I think that'll get you there. Hey, excellent. Um, thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. What a fun interview. I hope you enjoyed it. This is Marcy Mangan, the usual host of May the Record Reflect. I'm home from summer vacation and excited to get back to the mic next month. I would like to thank Ronnie Lot Choi for coming back to the podcast, this time as guest host, as well as to thank her guests, Justin Bernstein and Spencer Palkey from Unscripted Direct. As mentioned in the episode, Ronnie was a recent guest on Unscripted Direct, as well as a good many other NIDA program directors and faculty members. I've included the ones they mentioned in today's interview in the show notes, so I hope you'll click and listen. And since I'm talking about clicking and listening and sharing, please always feel free to share May the Record Reflect with anyone you believe it might serve. In fact, I'll be sharing this episode on Mock Trial with my son. He's in law school back east and on the Mock Trial team. Next up, need a classroom. Anyway, thank you for tuning in and subscribing. I'll catch up with you next month. Happy lawyering. May the Record Reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production. Nita, we are advocacy enhanced, mentorship reimagined. Welcome to the community.